welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show where we meet artists, travelers, and scientists from all over the world to talk about art, travel, and climate action. Well, hello and welcome, friends. Today, I'm chatting with Jeff Schaefer. He is the Chief Empowerment Officer at Brandwin Performance Innerwear, a company that manufactures seamless merino wool underwear and bralettes for the active woman. Jeff has an incredibly interesting background in sports, fashion, and travel that he's now bringing together in his own way to advance climate action. Um, That's what brought us together. He's the founder and designer of a number of companies, including fashion brands BC Ethic, Agave Denim, Bloomer Denim, and now he's co-founder at Branwin. His designs have been worn by a multitude of movie stars, George Clooney, Tom Cruise, Leonardo DiCaprio, Johnny Depp, members of bands, who remembers the Goo Goo Dolls, Bare Naked Ladies, Smash Mouth, some really um, cool musical acts. So that's the backstory, his kind of glittery background in Hollywood. The now story is what brought Jeff and I together, and I'm delighted to share this conversation with all of you today. Good morning, Good Jeff morning. Schaefer. Tell me uh, where, where you're calling from Portland today. Is this right? Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon. So I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico, looking out at slightly dusty mountains with snow. Tell us, what's it like in Portland today? Uh, the last few days have been unusually cold and very windy. Mm-hmm. And I'm so curious. I mean, this is Portland has been in the news so much this season. Um, are things calmer there now? I have a friend who was, you know, very close to nightly protests. So, to be fair, I think that Portland like so many things got politicized this summer and there were clearly regions or segments of the part of the city that were uh, heavily impacted uh, by the protests. Um, But I would say outside of those segments, you couldn't tell that anything was happening. Um, So unless you got in your car and went there or unless you happen to live in that neighborhood, it wasn't necessarily um, in your eyesight or top of mind. You'd have to basically watch a local news station in order to know what was happening, other mm-hmm. than what was happening on social media. And clearly, I would say that uh, people who who were in it, it was serious, but the way that it was portrayed on the media was um, not necessarily the way people were experiencing it. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy to know that. I, f- I felt like, you know, it was wildfires and then it was rocket launchers in the streets. And it just was so incongruous with my vision of, you know, bucolic Portland, Oregon, where we want to know about the life history of the chicken before we eat it. <laughs> exactly. That's totally true. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it was really a culmination of a culture war that's been happening f- for a long time. Uh, for mostly people who uh, now live in the suburbs of Portland or don't even live in the, the city or live in the state, actually, who come into the city in order to cause trouble. And then the opposing group, the Antifa, as they're called, they just show up to oppose. But mm-hmm. um, So um, almost all of the people that come into the city to, that were causing most of the commotion were coming in from outside of the city or outside of the state. Mm-hmm. So fascinating. Yeah. Well, so we're, uh, this is a show about art, travel, and taking climate action. Nice. Um, and, you know, when we first chatted, we were talking about Tomorrow's Air and Branwin, um, your company, uh, participating in Tomorrow's Air in some way. And I loved our first conversation because I felt like in that we we touched on so many topics in a business meeting. And that's what I kind of want to explore here in this call. Like, tell us a little bit first where you grew up because you're not a native of Portland. I feel like you've had a circuitous journey to the kind of mission, mission focused um, 
leader you are today. Yeah. So I grew up in in California um, in the 70s and 80s during what I call the the golden days of the um, of the action sports lifestyle. Um, so basically, I could take a bus to Santa Monica Beach and surf. You could go to, to the ocean and catch fish. Uh, you could ride. Motor, there were multiple motorcycle parks, you know, within a, a very close distance to downtown Los Angeles, from Indian Dunes to Saddleback Park to to uh, As- Ascot Park. Um, it was a city where you could go fishing, go camping, go skiing, go hiking. You know, even today, you can still ski in the in at Big Bear or Arrowhead, and then surf in the Pacific Ocean the same day if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at that time, you, you know, the drive from Los Angeles to San Diego was primarily through um, orange apple, uh, orange orchards, orange trees. So, hence Orange County. So it was a incredible uh, growing up period. You could. Kids were free to hitchhike around the city, hitchhike through Topanga. It was pretty safe. Uh, and there was adventure around every corner. Um, but then the city just grew so huge uh, with so many millions of people living there that the innocence of that and did, went away. That It was dangerous, really, to be out on the street as a kid. And, um, mm-hmm. and for me, the distance it took to get out of the city in, into clean air uh, into into recreation was so far that I really felt claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in I searched all around Colorado, Utah, Idaho, New Mexico, uh, Arizona, and fell in love with um, Oregon in the summer of 2005. The thing that's so awesome about California is that it's it's basically founded in creative, in Hollywood and music and entertainment. Um, so the the atmosphere is is great, but uh, there's a lot of baggage I I feel that comes with it, and then there's just way too many people there. And you were, you know, a super sporty kid. I was reading a little bit about your deep sea fishing and baseball and motocross. But then you got into fashion. So what happened was, is that I, as a kid, I um, loved going to work with my dad or going to work with my uncle. Um, I loved the enterprise. And um, and it's kind of funny, my dad really wanted me to become a psychologist. So in, in all... What was he? Was he a psychologist? He, so he grew up basically, um, I would say, a wealthy, spoiled child. And um, and grew up as in his father's business, but hated mm. it. And then mm. dis- and then discovered psychology. And as an adult, got a PhD in psychology and became mm. a psychologist. And mm. tried to convince all of his kids, five of us, that that was the only worthy uh, profession to be in. I would say honestly that our family history is has a lot of what I call shamanism and healers in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand how that happened, but. Um, I had I felt like I was too young to become a psychologist and didn't have enough real awareness. So, uh, so I basically did get a degree in psychology, but I used that time to study as many things that were interesting to me as possible. And at that time, business was forbidden; it was actually not, not allowed. And, mm-hmm. and in your family, yeah. And so I studied. Um, experimental psychology, specifically human learning and animal learning. I had no interest in it. Um, and But at the same time, I, I took a lot of classes that were very interesting, like Shakespeare and Greek mythology, and one in particular that kind of opened my mind up, which was called Wilderness and Man. And it was mm-hmm. bas- basically a history of how the national park systems were developed and the whole idea of ecology and conservation and access and protection and is really way ahead of its time, honestly. Then after I graduated, my dad wanted me to become a psychologist, and uh, I still had no interest. So um, I took a a Greyhound bus to Flagstaff, Arizona, and couch surfed with some friends and started Uh started working at the Arizona Snowbowl. 
I loved that. Your dad was so delighted. You took that education and you became a ski bum in flag. Yeah. And then honestly, um, the roommates that I were with while I was working at the Snowball uh, were all students of, of at the university in business. And as I heard the stories of what they were learning and where they were going, I felt envious. So I went to the placement office at the at NAU and I spoke to the woman and I said, Hey, if you if I was your son and had a degree in psychology and uh and was looking for a career path, uh what would you recommend I do? And she was like, That's simple, computer science. Uh, <laughs> and and I said, Okay, so would I get a, a would I get a, a master's degree or a, another bachelor's in sugar degree? And she goes, Well you should get a a master's degree. So um, I literally, for the first time ever, studied for my GMAT, took the test, passed it, uh, really got really good scores on it, got a research assistantship and, and accepted to the MBA program at Northern Arizona University. And then when I called my dad to tell him that I was no longer going to be a ski bum and that I had gotten accepted and was going to be an MBA, he he cried and said that he had lost his son forever. Oh my word! It was the worst Jeff day. Was- Schaefer, and you're, I mean, on so many <laughs> on so many other metrics, you've done something delightful. You are taking initiative. You're. Oh yeah. I mean, I think going from ski bumming to computer sciences, like those are very different uh, ends of the spectrum. I think that that also explains kind of my whole life in that it's. I'm, I basically do things in extreme directions all the time. Mm-hmm. You are our kind of people. Well, so, but how did this, now I'm even more curious how we got to fashion. So I was invited to work for my uncle as a chief financial officer. He was owned an apparel company in Los Angeles that incidentally I had worked at when I was a teenager or preteen. And he invited me to come work for him after I got my MBA as his chief financial officer. And and he basically made what I would call disposable children's clothes. Mm-hmm. And, and fast fashion. And uh yeah, and I really didn't like the clothes and I didn't like the the way that they were made, but I was became very interested in making clothes that had higher quality and were more interesting. And so I rented, um, like, I don't know, a hundred square feet from him and, uh, put a, a collection together. And to be fair that I took that collection to the magic trade show in Vegas and I sold nothing. And, uh, then six months later, I went back with a revised version and sold nothing. And then basically started having, I would say, almost like a a sort of a nervous breakdown because I had never failed at anything Mm -hmm. um, that I really put my mind to. And, um, and, and then I, you know, in the midst of that started thinking about how brands worked and how fashion worked and how marketing worked and um, put together a concept um, called BC Ethic, uh, went to New York and 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 got an interview with a, a newspaper and then showed up at the magic trade show with BC ethic and had a, a front cover news story as a lead in. We were busy from the first morning until the last day we wrote $350,000 worth of orders. Uh, we were the, probably the busiest booth at the show and we had, I had no way to make any of it for me. Like when I was 13 and graduated high school, my or graduated elementary school, my dad was like, well, what do you want for a graduation present? And for me, I was like, okay, I want to get scuba diving lessons. So um, I became a, a PADI certified scuba diver when I was 13. When I was a kid before that, my dad had a boat in San Diego and we spent a lot of time on the ocean mm-hmm. and uh, fishing, both commercial fishing, albacore, uh, harpooning swordfish, um, and even back then, honestly, my dad would would tell us stories about when he was a kid about how good the fishing was mm-hmm. and, and talk about how bad the fishing was mm-hmm. during those times. And as as my life basically, you know, went by and t- I could see that, frankly, the ocean was dying way before, mm-hmm. way, be- way before, you know, the last 10 years when it became an 
a, a major conversation. Um, and then even to test it, I was at Earth Days in Topanga Canyon, and somebody showed up with documents of fish counts from Los Angeles in the 20s, and the, mm. fi- and the fish that was caught, the quantity, the quality, the size, you know, really was shocking and not mm. even not even really believable about what had happened to the ocean and and between being a surfer and a fisherman and being a lover of the ocean i would say that my first real impact about climate change or or over abuse of the climate started with my love of the ocean and watching what had happened there and then mm. and then as a surfer basically i grew up surfing as much as possible and for a, a portion of my life i surfed almost every day but then I started getting ear infections from the water being polluted and ended up in the hospital a couple of times and really had to either go to wearing earplugs or giving up surfing. And that was a a really tough, tough decision as well. Um, But fortunately, when I was 17, um, I did a Northwest Outward Bound course, which is a 23-day wilderness training, mountaineering, and survival course. Where were and, you? And I was in Glacier Peak Wilderness in Washington State. Nice. Uh, it was incredible. I mean, to, to look back on it today, like we were in serious danger several times. It was very trying. Like, for example, we did a, a 72-hour um, solo, you know, with with a handful of food and water <laughs> and a tent or a sleeping or a, a pack of matches. But, you know, that, th- that organization was really the first time that I heard leave it better than you found it. Leave, leave no trace. Uh, every campground that every, everywhere we went where there was marks of, of humans being there, whether it was poop or whether it was um, fire pits, we basically cleaned them. It was, you know, took it as our duty. So we were, you know, turning, cleaning up web, uh, campsites and des- destroying fire circles. And um, and that was really when the whole kind of like the wilderness as sanctuary and uh, an appreciation of pristine was there. And, and that, could, that kind of set an early, I would say, marker in my head for, uh, for, the, for the environment. But, um, but really when my family moved to, the Pacific Northwest. The Pacific Northwest has been a leader in in the environmental movement, and, and really was using the word sustainability before it was a word that had any national uh, exposure or meaning. When we moved up to Portland, every company that I dealt with, you know, sustainability was in their um, was in their value set and in their and 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 consumers demanded the answers for what that actually meant. And it was interesting because as I tried to incorporate that into my brand agave, at the time, I what got was a, what was agave? What did you make? What was the so product? so agave was um, was uh, made in made in USA, made in Los Angeles. It was. Basically, artisan quality Japanese, you know how Japanese uh, culture basically falls in love with things like wabi-sabi mm-hmm. or, uh, or barns mm-hmm. that, that are kind of vintage. And, mm-hmm. and, and they fell in love with denim after, the, after World War II. And there were, there were small batch artisanal mm-hmm. de- denim producers. And I found access to those mills and started making mm-hmm. jeans out of that material, mm-hmm. um, as well as, you know, basically I'm a jeans and t-shirt guy. So I made, uh, my goal was to make the best jeans that could be made in the world using mm-hmm. Jap- Japanese denim and then mm-hmm. t-shirts using the highest quality cotton in the world, which is Supima cotton, which mm-hmm. is, which is made also grown in California. So, uh, um, mm-hmm. so Basically, agave was grown and sewn um, Supima cotton T-shirts and Japanese premium denim, all made in USA. Um, Perfect for Hollywood. I love it. <laughs> yeah. oh, so, you, so you were um, incorporating your sustainability mind into yeah. this brand. And so two things happened that were really critical. One was editors who were jumping on the sustainability, eco-friendly uh, bandwagon back in 2000, 
13, 14, really saw that whole movement as a fashion trend, not, uh-huh. as, not, not as a value proposition. Sustainability as a fashion trend. That's correct. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, you know, that was um, interesting, disheartening. Uh, there was a lot of education that was going on. Uh, but really, you know, retail in general is basically we want to give consumers what, what they're interested in. And at the time, if you wanted to buy organic cotton or recycled cotton or, or recycled polyester, um, it meant that the fabrics were more expensive. And so, so I would go to market and tell my customers that this was sustainable, that it was eco-friendly, that it was organic. And they would say, well, then why is it more money? Why is it more expensive? And, uh, and then they would say things like, well, my customers don't really care about that. Um, and it was really disheartening, to be honest. And, um, and then as I did research into how much cotton uh, used water and how in the future water was going to be a, a major source of concern because of shortage, uh, I started looking into ways of producing cotton without water and ways of washing jeans without water. And then, and then, frankly, at some particular point between my customers telling me that, that the retail customers didn't care and, and how dirty and abusive my product was, I decided that I didn't want to be in the business anymore. At best, mm-hmm. I, at, at best it was clean coal. And, um, and honestly, my passion, uh, my passion for my industry, my company uh, evaporated, and I put my company up for sale. Mm-hmm. You know, this, um, I think it, it, what you experienced in fashion has also run through the travel um, industry around, you know, would people pay more? Would Do they pay more if the trip, if all aspects of the trip have been thought through very carefully for sustainability? And that is a, you know, ongoing people. I mean, what we found with, with, tour operators and carbon offsetting, for example, I mean, businesses that tried for years to get people to pay a little bit more to offset their trip uh, would not. But then when the business wrapped offsetting into the trip price, then people were happy for it and accepted it. But it's, it was a, it happens. I mean, the adventure travel category where I come from, that I think is something that we've grappled with also. People care, but um, but if they're given a choice to pay more or less, a lot of them will still pay less. So th- that's that's the same thing in apparel, and then in apparel in particular. So one thing that happened that I learned that was super disheartening as as I started doing research into organic, the concept of organic cotton, for example. Hmm. Um, I I have relationships with people that are involved globally with the global cotton supply chain. And they told me that 10 times the amount of products in the marketplace are sold as organic than is actually planted annually. And I'm like, well, how does that happen? And he said, greenwashing Mm. or blending. Mm. And I was like, this is so disheartening. So that means that all these people that are buying cotton sheet, you know, organic cotton sheets and towels and everything, and they're feeling good about their life. Uh, it could be that in fact, they're not. And he's, and he said, yep, that's right. And then I dig, dug a little bit deeper and found out that for the most part, I would say 98% of even the organic cotton is GMO anyway. And that there's literally no more organic cotton that's non-GMO. And then when you realize how much cotton water uses, you're like, why would I ever be in the cotton business? Mm -hmm. Anything cotton. Oh, incredible. Okay, so there you are. You've had two very successful companies and you're all the movie stars love your brands. And you say, I'm out. Were you married at that point? Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I've been married to my wife, Lauren, uh, for 27 years. Um, she's been my partner in every business. She's actually mm-hmm. a, pa- a pattern maker uh, mm-hmm. and a designer. I, I wound up becoming a designer because 
I was going to, I asked her to design a collection for me one time and she said, no, it's for men. You design it. So she basically taught me the process mm. of design. Mm. Um, but yeah, we, tr- we, we tried to sell the company. Um, and then I decided to kind of take a step in 2013 towards the, uh, towards the next level of, of, of ethical business and, and whatnot. So I launched, I decided to, even though I, even though it's probably unusual to do so, I launched a brand on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. In 2013, I launched the Bluer Denim Project. And uh, basically, it was 100% made in America, grown and sewn in the USA, verifiably cotton grown in the USA, milled in the USA by Cone Mills, cut and sewn in Los Angeles, um, with ozone laundry processes, so no bleach and very light amounts of water. And then it was sold direct to consumer. It had a buy one, give one uh, philanthropic goal where every pair of jeans that we shipped, we asked you to send one pair back. And then we either gave that pair to a homeless shelter or or sent them to a company in Arizona that converted it into uh, building materials. Um, and that's really honestly where my passion went. And, um, and so I started focusing heavily on this company called Bluer Denim. Uh, Bluer Denim came from a, a, a phrase from Asian, in this case, Japanese culture that's called bluer than indigo. Mm-hmm. And bluer than indigo is a term that basically means when the student surpasses the master. Mm-hmm. So like if so it's like when the karate student all of a sudden or however long he works becomes such a good martial artist that he can beat the sensei. And so to me this was a metaphor for really the way the world is right now because the older generation and the establishment is like there's no way to fix this or mm-hmm. climate change mm-hmm. isn't real or right. it's a, it's a hoax and that the next generation is like what the hell are you talking about? It's mm-hmm. real. And you gave us this problem. And so we're not even going to have that conversation. We're not going to have that. Gonna, so we now are into solutions. And so to me, it's really the, unfortunately we've passed on this problem to the next generation and said, we don't know how to fix this. You guys fix this. Mm. So I, I, I fell in love with that, that concept. And then honestly was going to try to express it through blue or denim when the last remaining mill in the United States, Cone Denim, was closed overnight by by the by the hedge fund that had owned it, and 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 at that day, basically, I was done with uh, apparel in my mind and with denim forever. And uh, and when I got over that depression, I was like, okay, if if the next generation is really the 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 people that we need to invest in then what I want to do is set up the Amazon of sustainability and, and set up a, a marketplace where instead of talking about what's possible, focus on brands, people, and companies that are already moving strongly towards sustainable or are sustainable, and then tell their stories and whether we sell their products or just editorially speak for them, that that, that, that would be my project. and. And so it was going to be called Bluer Than Indigo, and it was going to be a sustainable online marketplace. And that was in 2015. And then um, as that was happening, I was doing research on products and brands and people. Um, and two things happened simultaneously. One was I realized that this endeavor of creating this online sustainable marketplace was too big financially and too too difficult editorially for me to handle as a as a uh, as an entrepreneur it's a big vision but i decided i did find a company uh at a at a flea market in portland where my wife and i traveled and 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 we met a girl who was selling merino wool underwear that that she and her husband had sourced and she had developed with her mom and me being an outdoor guy and loving merino wool was like wow and then in looking at the product it was made seamless which is super high technology cutting edge italian mechanical engineering uh that doesn't involve a lot of waste with cutting and sewing garments and fits 
uh, Im- immensely, incredibly well. And so I was like, hey, Lauren, um, you know, what do you think about merino wool underwear? And this is, this is incredible. It's seamless. And she was like, yeah, right, Jeff. I, I think in theory, it's a great idea, but the idea of wearing wool um, on my private parts doesn't sound great. I go, well, let's just try a pair. And the woman was, her name was Shauna, and um, she's just a classic Central Coast, California, I would say tomboy, mom, surfer mm. girl. Anyway, she was charming. So after about a month of wearing the underwear, I'm like, Lauren, what do you think about them? And she said, well, I don't really wear thongs, so maybe you could get me another a, a bikini. So I ordered a bikini from her. I got her them about a month later. She's like, these are really great underwear. Why don't you see what other colors they have? So I reached out to Shauna and I said, you know, would you be interested in having me help you kind of take your brand into the outdoor space where I think there would be a, a better um, – a better acknowledgement of the aspects of merino wool. And because you had all this brand expertise from all your past, she must have been delighted. Did she comprehend how cool it was that you sort of floated into her world? She she did. And, and so frankly, at some particular point when I had called and Lauren said, okay, that's it. This is the best product I've ever worn. I'm throwing, I'm throwing away every pair of underwear and bra I have. And all I want to wear is this product. Um, she called me back and he sent me an email and she said, weren't you the, the guy who I met with you and your wife? And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, I want you to adopt my company. I want you to take over this project because I have a son who's a year. I'm having another boy in three months. I'm going to have another boy after that. And I'm tired and I really just want to be a mom and I don't want to be multitasking and I want to be completely present. And I, I, I know you understand what I was trying to do and I would like for you to take it over. So I was just beside myself because in researching where the wool came from, it came from this company called Sud Wool, which was German, and they grow from a, a, a farm in New Zealand that uh, has traceability and and this has all these certifications for how the wool and the animals are treated and they're and they're and they're eco not only eco friendly but organic and and at that point I realized okay well here's the real issue then Jeff um, besides rebranding it is you need to surround yourself with women to take this project over. So at that point, my brain went crazy. Like Mm -hmm. I, I became obsessed because here was, here was a product that, um, that should have been, a a a basically a, a mainstay in women's activewear because of the antimicrobial and, uh, moisture and, all of the and the way that it fits on your body, and yet ninety nine point nine percent of a women that you might ask about it would be like, "You're nuts, you're crazy." Wool underwear, never. You know, mm-hmm. does does your wife know that you're investing in this company? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, at some particular point, with everybody that I knew that had the product, loving it, and then all the people who didn't know saying you're nuts i realized that it was really kind of like the the way that people have their preconceived notion about that scratchy grandma sweater created this opportunity but but to be fair also you know there's another problem in that the the active wear and the outdoor industry is dominated by polyester and it used to wear a lot. It used to be a lot of cotton, but polyester, which is um, petroleum based, really took over the industry when they rebranded it as microfiber, or when they uh, basically rebranded it at, with all these trademarks that basically make it seem like it's super high tech and good for you, and its moisture management and heat and heat management and all of these treatments. But at the end of the day, it's petroleum based. At the end of the day, it's fossil fuel. And and in the best case scenario, it gets recycled and upcycled and gets used again. In worst case scenario, it ends up in landfill. And it's become clear to me that the sooner that we can end the use of petroleum products, the better. And 
But somehow, especially because petroleum-based products are cheaper, it has become the dominant material in the outdoor industry and in the active industry. Mm-hmm. And although it does work well for wicking, my experience with wearing uh, any polyester-based products, they smell. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so it's been a big marketing con job, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I really saw this as a tremendous opportunity to improve women's lives. Jeff, um, there's something else I want to break in. We had also a conversation about Project Drawdown and the inspiration you got from that and sort of your recognition around the role of women's leadership and women's empowerment. Can you um, bring that into the conversation here too? Yeah, well, I had a hero mom. When I, whenever I designed clothes in my mind, it was always to impress my mom. It was always from a quality standpoint. Um, she was a tremendous, tremendous person, um, and super smart. And, um, and so I always had this natural affinity. In fact, I actually like women way more than men. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, not, not sexually, but just in terms of how they communicate and how they relate emotionally and Mm. and how they solve problems and whatnot. But, Mm -hmm. but, but part of what happened was as I was dealing with my own business, um, and sustainability, and then hearing from the marketplace that, um, that they didn't care about sustainability. And then all of a sudden, all this climate denial thing, mm-hmm. I start. I started to think that there was no hope. Mm-hmm. That basically, we were on a trajectory that was possible to be turned around, but the likelihood of getting the whole world on the same page and then make that swap from sustainable to from, sorry, from not sustainable to sustainable or from carbon you know, disaster to carbon sequestration. I just didn't think it would be possible for it to happen. And I was really depressed about it. And um, and then I was in thinking about it more, I was like, how did this happen? And then I've been looking at it and why people have such an object to the whole concept of getting rid of it is because basically what we live in today in the industrialized world is the result of uh, the industrial revolution, which couldn't have happened without basically coal and and fuel, and so basically the whole world is wired for the, the mm-hmm. banks, the lawyers, business, and everything, transportation. So basically, there has to be a whole kind of realignment, and and mm-hmm. nobody says, okay, don't pay me a dividend. Mm-hmm. Nobody says, okay, don't pay me a salary. Mm-hmm. So. So in my basically just trying to deal with how for the first time, you know, you and I know we have a finite life. It comes with being a human being. I was like, okay, the planet has a finite life or humanity has a finite life as well. I came across this book called The Drawdown. And in in looking at the book and reading it, which was really hard uh, because as much as, um, as, it, as it was presenting itself as a solution, I also realized that having the solution and implementing the solution are totally different things. I believe number four on the list really had to do with female empowerment. And basically what it said was that even though women in the United States and and in Western Europe are much more empowered than women are globally, globally women are still in many countries don't have rights, uh, don't have education, uh, don't have uh, work skills are are left to basically cook and clean and and child raise, and then I'm not sure whether the book presented this way or whether my mind created this way, but I started thinking about it as a capitalist. Me as a businessman, there's financial capital, there's human capital, there's all this different kind of capital. I'm like, wow, if 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 you look at human capital as the ability to solve problems and to create change and find new solutions. And if globally, say, 70% or 80% of women are unempowered by virtue of whatever culture or society or economic or education that they live in, if we can get those women globally out of that condition and bring them into the marketplace and bring them into the education system and and have them be part of the solution, then 
that's a tremendous amount of power. That's a tremendous amount of capital. I mean, basically, it, it doubles or triples our, our capacity. And then if you know how women think, you know, in terms of like beating down the problem or redesigning the problem or growing new solutions or being creative or having empathy, mm. to me, the solution for climate change is the empowerment of women. Mm-hmm. Um, and and giving women the opportunity. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be at home if that's what they choose or raise kids if that's what they choose. That's fantastic. Our our kids need that. But if they decide they want to become activists, attorneys, uh, you know, environmentalists, entrepreneurs, and they and they incorporate that into, you know, their solutions, then that's how we're going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. So so you know, to me, really, female empowerment is how to save the world. Mm-hmm. And sports. So, and so that's the other thing is like, how do you, when you meet a woman who, who has confidence, who, you know, doesn't kind of like become submissive and is free to speak her mind, however smart or however, you know, however she, she feels that she wants to be expressive um, you're like, wow, how did she get that? How come she's not suffering from uh, issues that have to do with uh, self-confidence or whatever? And I started thinking, why is it that men have confidence or appear to have confidence and, and a lot of women don't? And I, I kind of came to the conclusion that for me anyways, it seemed to happen in sports. Guys basically, you know, when they're from the time they're really old enough to compete, are put up in in sports, whether it's baseball, football, basketball. They have to get chosen to be on a team. You know, if they if they they may have to deal with the humiliation of not getting chosen. They may have to deal with the humiliation of not being strong enough, uh, tough enough. But then, you know, they get knocked down. They get back up. They get knocked down. They get back up. They they find their way onto the team, and then in sport, it's not it is real life, but it's not really real life. But it's a great place for people to learn that. And a lot of women, I would say, when when they hit thirteen, then it becomes maybe more about fashion, or maybe more about boys, or maybe more about beauty, or um, and, and so unless they have a parent or an experience or a, a hype, a super smart or a, or a role model you know, um, they miss that opportunity of, of learning how much power they actually have, which is way more than they think. And, and so, so in, in looking at some research, at research, you know, basically uh, almost all of women who have executive positions at higher companies had some level of high school or college athletics. And I don't think that that's a surprise whatsoever. So, to, so part of what I've kind of decided to build into the brand wins brand through philanthropy and and through giving back and it has to do with getting women into sports at an early age regardless of what sport it is hiking camping fishing running biking rock climbing mountain climbing even just walking running cycling whatever because mm-hmm. because the, the 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 experience and the confidence and uh, and the empowerment that comes from breaking new ground there is really a a, a tremendous uh, valuable experience. And, and so this is how an underwear company <laughs> yeah. is is fighting for climate change. Yeah. Well. Well. So. So. So we have a product that I'm proud of that uh, has its own sustainable merits and is but but also it's really about showing and helping women achieve things to uh to get to places that they may not have been at to before Mm -hmm. i love it so much i mean i think you know when we first started chatting i was you know pitching you on carbon removal with permanent storage and you know a few seconds into that conversation you were like i'm way ahead of you i'm totally down and i understand carbon offsetting and carbon removal and the real thing you have to do here is uh get women in leadership positions one of the things about the whole outdoor industry is 
it is totally male dominated and almost all of the products out there for females are basically what they call shrink it and pink it. <laughs> and um and so you know the the story of how Shauna which I I didn't mention this but basically she grew up a tomboy. She was the first girl to play on a boys little league baseball team and her dad you know basically had her in on a you know was her biggest fan mm. and and you know so so she was so she basically created this underwear obviously for herself mm-hmm. with her husband helping her with the sourcing and her mom helping her with the patterns mm-hmm. but but she was like i need i we women need underwear that is made and designed by women for women Mm-hmm. And and that was really her inspiration, and of course I fell in love with that. Mm-hmm. I had to be attached to it and be part of it somehow. Where do you see this brand going? What would you like to see for it? Let me just be clear that you know Merino has um, two sides. One side has to do with animal abuse and uh, and poor conditions for the animals themselves. Um, and the other has to do with truly sustainable um, ethical treatment. So right now in, in the merino world, there's a lot of merino that's out in the marketplace that is that I would say is not necessarily ethical uh, and actually in some cases abusive. Um, but as the as the merino industry develops, um, there's definitely a market developing, and we're part of it for treat for animals that are treated ethically and are and are um, and are of a higher standard. That said, merino until something comes along that's better is by far, by far, by far, by far, by far the best material for the planet and the best material to make women's underwear out of. And yet, probably globally, I don't. I doubt if even one tenth of one percent of women are wearing merino. Mm-hmm. But if, but and so, so to me, you know, that means that the women that are out there, which is what ninety nine point nine, are wearing a product that is bad. Mm-hmm. And so, whether Brandwin becomes the the merino wool underwear for all active women on in the on the planet. Mm-hmm. Or whether we're just the first one in, or the first one in to really focus on it, um, mm-hmm. my goal is to basically turn merino into the standard of active underwear mm-hmm. for women of all sports across the planet, and to basically mm-hmm. put petroleum out of business. Uh, right on. That is a bold pronouncement. I love that. Um, well, we're coming to the end here, Jeff. I need to ask you one of my favorite questions that I ask all guests, which is about music. Tell us a little bit about what young Jeff Schaefer was listening to back in the day and what kind of music you listen to these days. So here's the thing is, so um, I inherited a passion from music from my dad mm-hmm. to where basically there is not a day or a time of any day when music isn't playing. Wow. And um and so when I was a kid basically for him it was rock music until he discovered classical music. Um for me as a kid I I begged my dad when I was 7 to get me an Otis Redding uh, uh 45 disc. I begged my dad to get me a Led Zeppelin Stairway to Heaven disc. Um I would say that through the through the eighties, I was really into to new wave and punk rock, and uh, I would say that. And I don't know if this is good or bad. The one thing about music, though, that I found is that everybody thinks their music is the best. <laughs> There's nobody who won't tell you that the music that they're listening is the best. So, mm-hmm. but having you know been a fan of, I, I'm a fan of all music, um, you know. T- it's really just how it makes you feel. And music to me is really an emotion um, transport. Uh, it basically just amplifies emotion. So I became, I'm eclectic. I would say I listen to, bon- I basically listen to, I like Bon Iver a lot. Mm-hmm. 
right now. Um, but I, I became a fan of electronic music, mm. uh, I would say probably 10 years ago. And so I spend the mornings listening. I listen pretty much listen to just um, music that I can get on the internet. I listen, I listen to an internet station called Ibiza Sonica, which is house music that basically um, that basically is live from the island of Ibiza in Spain um, with six channels and and it's twenty four hours a day and it's all live. Mm-hmm. And then in the afternoons, I listen to another internet station called Bass Drive, mm-hmm. and it, and it's drum and bass and jungle, and it also is live twenty four hours a day. But it comes played from clubs across the planet as as the as the time changes, whatever mm-hmm. whatever whatever is between say ten p.m. and two a.m. Those DJs are broadcasting live. It comes through on that channel. That is so cool. I just learned something very fun that I'm going to try out. You're inspiring and cool. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. And we're going to do more together. I think we'll be seeing more of each other through Tomorrow's Air and the Adventure Travel Trade Association and as Branwyn builds. Well, that is the best news 